This is Gramercy, the podcast that highlights the stories of those who live and work on the margins of society. I'm your host, Corey Millat. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Welcome to Season 3. This season, you will get the privilege of meeting the formerly incarcerated and those who mentor, employ, and restore hope into their lives. I am partnering with Defy Ventures to bring you this dynamic series that will teach us what the journey looks like for life after prison. As a white-collar criminal, Mr. Bertrone Pitt Sr. speaks to us today of the moral ambiguity and misguided belief that convinced him that his crimes were harmless because they were not violent, gang-related, or involving drugs. This mindset, unfortunately, cost him 20 years of his life in state prison. I was quite intimidated when I first met Mr. Pitt Sr., I felt completely out of my realm. It's that feeling you get when you know everyone else in the room is smarter than you. You know that one? I felt as though I was listening to a professor educate me about the ins and outs of the prison system from first-hand knowledge and experience. He is yet another individual that does not fit the mold of what you think a criminal looks, acts, or talks like. I hope by now we have learned to set aside our judgments and stereotypes and listen to each person we meet with the respect of a fellow human being that simply learned a life lesson the hard way. Mr. Bertrone Pitts, I am very thankful that you are joining me today for a conversation and I look forward to learning about your life and your story and all the things you have to teach us. Okay, well, I'm glad to be here. Glad to share Oh, thank you about so teaching much. Anything, but I can certainly share. Well, maybe you'll be a teacher by default. Maybe you're not planning on it, but we're going to learn okay. from you nonetheless. Okay. Well, I like to start with a very uh, easy icebreaker question. And this one is, if we could time travel and live anywhere in history and anywhere in the world at any time, where would you choose and why? Quite simply, I would probably go back to my high school years. Yeah. So I would probably go back to about 1979. And because now, especially if I have the knowledge that I have now with me, I can make different choices. Mm -hmm. A lot of different choices, choices that would be more beneficial to those around me as well as myself, my family. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you've had time to think about this type of question before. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I imagine. Uh, and I find it interesting in all these conversations I'm having uh, for this season, most people want to go back to a time when they could change that, make that little bit of choice difference in their life. It's very interesting during this season. And I think that right there in itself is a good lesson for all of us. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I would love to learn what it was like being you growing up. What were you like as a child? What were your parents like? How were you raised? What were the good things that influenced your life? And what were some of the negative things? 
overall, it would appear, at least on the surface, that I had a very good childhood. I had uh, two parents at home until my very last year in high school. Uh, my father was an aerospace engineer. My mother was a teacher. We lived in a very nice home in West Los Angeles. Eventually, my father bought a home out in, in the San Fernando Valley, by one in Riverside. So we always had uh, homes with pools, so to speak. So nice. we, you know, we had a lot of stuff going on. It was me and my younger sister. My parents, neither one of them were into illegal activity. In fact, they were very serious about not doing anything illegal. Mm -hmm. I was pushed in regards to education. My mother was evidently obviously into teaching. And so I uh, had a little bit of advantage in that from young, I learned to love to read, study, research, these types of things. Nice. But in the end made education school, not particularly easy, but it kind of gave me a step up. My mother insisted that uh, as opposed to going to certain schools, she wanted me to go to some of the best schools. And since she was at that time working with LA Unified, she made sure I got a passed me and my sister both so we could get transfers into what people consider the best schools that LA Unified mm -hmm. had to offer. It was a pretty positive, at least on the surface, upbringing. My grandparents both working hard, doing well. Uh, family from Texas, from out of this country, and Belize, family all around. Um, very good, very good, strong, solid family. However, simultaneously, on the surface, everything looked good, but what I did not realize until many, many years later is that there were some issues that had been occurring between my father and mother. Mm. In effect, my father had somewhat, he basically had a second family. Oh no. And what that meant was that while we had a lot of resources, these resources were being divided. Mm -hmm. And part of the problem was that I was being pushed to associate and spend time with kids that were all of them had certain things and while i didn't have i never went without anything i still didn't have quite the same stuff they did mm -hmm. which of course you know as kids you get teased picked on oh, you know, I, learned sure. to deal with it. I learned to deal with it but that stuck into my psyche i think that affected me much greater than i ever thought yeah yeah and, uh people we're looking at my father, you know, I'm the son of Dr. Pitts. But yet I'm thinking, okay, why don't I have, why can't I have shoes like this? And mm -hmm. I know that we have the money to do it. So what I didn't know, obviously, was that, you know, it's kind of rough when you try and care for two households at one time. So you didn't live up that image that people thought you should be living up to, the standard right. of living and all of that. Yeah. Right. And even though people, the people didn't, I never got ostracized or anything like that. It was more of an internal feeling. When you're young kids, kids can be harsh. Oh yeah. But we can be harsh on each other, and we were. And while it didn't, it wasn't to the point of making me go commit suicide or do something crazy. It still affected my psyche. So at this point, uh, I did well in school. I excelled in school. I paid uh, basketball, tennis, earned myself a scholarship uh, from the Army through ROTC program. Nice. Got into a Wonderful university, ROTC simultaneously, so this way I could work toward uh -huh. the military career, getting commissioned. Um, did very well for myself as far as that's concerned. However, even though I had the education, graduated 
uh, from like say got a fine degree degree in economics i still had some personality issues some flaws i was still trying to be like everybody else mm. all right something that started from young i still saw people as having just a step above me and even though i was doing very well relatively speaking mm -hmm. i still wanted more mm. and that's eventually uh contributed to my committing criminal acts mm. did you grow up in a religious household was your family religious i did in the typical religious sense in that my family was primarily united methodist however as i understand faith now because now i am a christian i'm one of jehovah's witnesses actually studying the bible and applying the principles of actually in the bible i can say that while my family was considered religious mm -hmm. there was a whole lot we really did not know mm -hmm. yeah and i do realize now and later again i'm much older now but I realized that had I known and understood a lot of these principles directly from the Bible, the odds are very low that I ever would have committed any criminal mm. acts, things that got me in trouble later on. Isn't that interesting? The difference between beliefs and actions. Yes. That, that's the story of religion, I think, across the globe, isn't it? Mm. You mentioned growing up or graduating high school in 79. Is that correct? No, I, actually, I graduated high school in 82. 82. And I graduated college in 1986. Okay, and you were out in LA at that time. What was the racial climate like? It sounds like you were doing really well for yourself that the racial climate didn't seem to affect you negatively at all. Well, at that time, I was the individual who learned how to live in different worlds. When I say live in different worlds, because of the income that my father made and because of the people that he chose to be around, I was well acclimated to dealing with white, upper mm. and upper middle class, children, kids, peers, and these types of things. At the same time, I was able to deal with fellow black and Latinos, exactly the same. Mm -hmm. But in the same token, I was one who, while I was very good and I kind of excelled in most of the things I did, there was another side of me, mm. the part that really wanted to feel good about himself without having to prove myself or have, have to put off these airs. Mm -hmm. Part of me was the part that decided that, well, I could associate with these people and did. When I got time, I was associating with people on the other side of town. Mm. Where I could really be myself and just let my, take my shoes off and just kick back. Mm-hmm. Didn't have to play a role. You didn't have to play a role. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it was around people who had a much looser attitude on crime, on what crime was, what right and wrong was. Mm -hmm. I had no problem with people who were committing a variety of scams and these types of things. My attitude was, as long as you're not picking up a club or picking up a weapon and using it on somebody, physically hurting somebody, it's not really a crime. Mm. So a little yeah. bit of moral ambiguity in there. Exactly. Yeah. More than a little bit. I think to this day, I realize now that a lot of people who commit so-called white-collar crimes, mm -hmm. that's the thing that we all have in common. We don't have this belief that we are really hurting people. Interesting. The people who are really hurting people are the ones who 
are selling them drugs or the people who are picking up guns or even the people who are driving drunk and killing them. Those are the real criminals. Uh We're not even criminals. It would justify our choices, for sure. Yes. Our offenses get paid for by banks, by insurance companies, by insurance plans, these types of things. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a Robin Hood model, right? Well, the only thing is, is that we weren't giving to the poor. We were giving to us. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a difference there, yeah. So was it this affiliation with these this group of kids that you could be yourself around that eventually led you into the incident where you ended up getting caught and sentenced to prison? Well, first, first and foremost, um, the choices and decisions were always mine. All right. I do believe that. Um, I know all these external factors definitely played a role. However, in the end, I knew that what I was doing was wrong. Now, as regards to the other people, you see, this was something that built up over time. I'm the guy who, while I was in high school, I did things like other kids did. I mean, I used to love to street race. I was a Z car racer. I used to like Zs. Okay. But when you were at that time, when you're dealing with Zs and you're dealing with racing, you also have an open-ended attitude that has no issue with people who are stealing cars. Okay. I grew up in, with and associated with people who, if somebody damaged their Z, and say they needed a, they wrecked pretty much most of the rear. It was no problem. We knew some people who owned tow trucks, and we had people who would go out and scout. They'd go out to the valley or what have you, locate a vehicle, steal it, pull it right on out with the tow truck, and people aren't questioning it because they see a tow truck. Everybody see people pulling out tow trucks. Nobody questions it. Oh my God. it off into an area. We had you know different spots and neighborhoods. Go out, put the car in there. And now the person has a rear clip and all the rest of the vehicle gets sold. I, myself, did not really consider that a serious crime. Everybody got insurance. Insurance company's going to pay for it. My attitude was one where it was selfish, very selfish. I did not think about how the consequences of the actions that I took or the actions that people took around me. I did not think about how they would affect other people. I didn't, it wasn't a point of not caring. It was more a point of lying to myself or not allowing myself to see the pain and misery that's caused by these types of actions. Interesting. As you say that, I'm wondering, because first of all, isn't that something that parents usually pass down to kids? Like, you know, cause and effect. This is circumstances, this is the punishment or the discipline. If you do this, this is what's going to happen, or this is how somebody else will feel. It sounds like maybe that might have been missing since your dad's actions had a negative consequence in your life, and he didn't realize how that was affecting you. Maybe you kind of fell into that same mindset accidentally just from be, just that whole teaching without, by watching that whole yes. idea. Did that, does that sound? Into, it does. I fell into the type of attitude which made me okay in regards to being a hypocrite. You mm. see, the baritone pits that most people knew was educated, did well for herself, mm-hmm. got, a, got a pilot's license, did a lot of stuff, positive thing. This is the baritone pits that most people knew, but they didn't know the other side. Wow. Did they it get exhausting, the, hiding they, them? No, actually it didn't. It didn't. 
It really didn't. It was, and again, this is where my personality, uh, where I have, I realize now I had some serious flaws because when you justify things to yourself that you know are illegal, but you justify doing them and you really strive to believe that, then the rest of it's fairly simple. That's why people who are out there committing these scams and these types of things against most people, that's why they're able to do so so easily today. Remember that the vast majority of people who commit crimes along the type, uh, along the lines that I did, in most cases, we don't physically meet our victims. Mm -hmm. And when you don't meet the victims, it makes it a whole lot easier to carry something out. Mm -hmm. And one thing, even if you do meet the victims, we don't see any of the aftermath. Mm, the fallout from, yeah, from your choices. We don't see any of that. Mm -hmm. And so you're able to ignore it as if it does not happen. Whereas, clearly, I recognize that if anybody committed the crimes that I committed against myself or any of my family, I'd be really upset. It would be a really horrendous, terrible thing to, ordeal to go through. Mm -hmm. but I didn't consider that. I At didn't the time, that. yeah. It was all about me yeah. and my image. So this all transpired after college, during college, high school? When, when, when did the actual incident occur that led you to being caught? The criminal incidents, the multiple incidents occurred after college. Okay. Okay. The actual criminal incidents, the ones in which I got caught and ended up paying prison time for, let me mm -hmm. clarify because all along I was imperfect. I was doing little things here and there, but people didn't know. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. it's like some in society who we well know, the all difference between them and myself, they never got caught. Exactly. I got to a point in my life where I needed to make additional tax-free cash mm -hmm. in my mind. Mm -hmm. And that made it very easy because, as I said, I was associating with people, had associated with people who were involved in all types of scams. One thing I was not going to do was pick up a weapon or go bully somebody, go rob somebody. Or do, I, I'm not going to sell drugs to anybody because I don't, I didn't care for drugs. Mm -hmm. But see, I lied to myself in that I was able to believe the lie that what I was doing wasn't as criminal as what. These other guys are doing what they're doing is criminal, not what I'm mm -hmm. doing. Mm -hmm. No big thing. I was able to persuade myself of this. And I got myself involved with a group of people, myself being one of the main ones, who basically masterminded uh, what I might call a real estate burglary type scam, mm -hmm. in which we were posing as, as uh, buyers and we would get access to people's homes. And whether we got at whether we split up, got access to computers, access to cash, or what have you, the bottom line is we committed some sort of crime. Mm. The thing is, when we left their locations, you know, these people are thinking that we're coming back, and so they're shaking our hands and being nice and so on and so on, and never realizing that they had been victimized, or that at a later point when we get back to actually get back to another computer, that they will become victimized. Mm -hmm. And I had no problem doing it. Mm. First time we got caught, I did serve a little bit of prison time. But the thing is, I went to what they call a prison camp. Spent a bunch of time in a camp. 
Now that I was incarcerated, it was hard because I was away from my family. Mm -hmm. However, it didn't have the full impact upon me because my mindset was, okay, I got caught. I'm never going to do it again. Oh, you said to yourself, you're never going to do it again. I thought maybe you would say to yourself, next time I got to be even smarter. <laughs> no, no. I told myself I was never going to do it again. Really? And you had got a family out. at this time. You're married, the children. Yes, yes. yes. Okay. But at that point, I got out. It was doing okay. But the thing is, as I still had a desire for more cash and still trying to fit in, it didn't take long before I got myself involved in another situation, hmm. which is similar, similar type of crime. Mm-hmm. And this time, ultimately, we did get caught. And what I did not know, again, lying to myself, not being aware of the consequences, not intentionally not being aware of the consequences, what I didn't know is that my previous charges were serious but not violent. Mm -hmm. So when I got caught for this last one, all of a sudden now, I have two strikes. Because the three strikes law Mm -hmm. was not predicated strictly strictly on violent crimes. It's serious and violent. Well, anytime you enter a residence in the state and commit a crime, that can be considered a burglary. Is it considered a burglary, which is a serious offense? Why is it serious? Because of the potential, most likely, that people do uh, things that can happen. And as I look back in hindsight, there's little more that is unnerving than to know that your own safety and security has been violated by somebody that you had in your home Mm -hmm. because once that happens your entire your security your peace of mind is gone this person has invaded that which you hold sacred yours that you built and if you're an individual who believes that you are sharp you're reasonably sharp that just tears all of those walls down This is why that type of crime, in my mind, is serious Mm -hmm. and why it should be serious. Mm -hmm. So when when I committed this, the last crime, I was ignorant of that fact, but that's what I deserve. That is part of my own, uh, it was partially my making because once again, at the time, here I am living two lives, a good positive life that everybody knows about, and then I'll say the dark side. Mm-hmm. And for somebody who was educated and reads well and studies well, I don't have an excuse for not knowing mm. that when I committed this crime, I was exposing myself to a potential 25 to life sentence mm-hmm. or more. Mm-hmm. I don't have an excuse. Mm. I take full responsibility for what I did. The environmental factors are the environmental factors. But I'm also aware that there are some people who they grow up in the middle of the hood and they choose never to commit crimes. Everybody in the worst hoods is not all criminals. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the worst neighborhoods are not all gang members. Everybody in the worst neighborhoods are not all drug dealers mm-hmm. or users. Mm-hmm. It's a choice at some point, a choice, no doubt, that's guided and aided by others and by those environmental factors. But now I think I look at crimes like mine and I realize that what people talk about every day, they talk about people who have been addicted to drugs, people who are involved in gangs and violence. But very rarely do I hear people talk about those people who use this right here. Mm -hmm. What's in between the ears 
to mm-hmm. commit these crimes. And there are more of these people, especially now from what I understand in times of COVID, people are running these scams and doing these types of things all over the place, all kinds of places, but people aren't talking about the root oh, cause, yeah. nor are they trying to address, you know, it's almost like, okay, we're not going to worry about those criminals. Well, my problem is that I look at some criminals who, I'm not saying his scenario is anything like mine, because it was his upbringing. I look at Bernie Madoff. Mm-hmm. Did he not, was he not responsible or cause people to take their lives? For sure. When that scam happened? Yeah. People yeah. he didn't care about, never knew. They literally took their lives. And there's others. Lots more that we don't know about. Right. When yeah. people commit crimes like the crimes I committed, how do I know that my committing crime didn't cause some man or some woman to go do something illegal themselves? Because while I got all their money, bank accounts are dry, they still had to pay bills. Mm. It takes time for that money to come back. So I have no way of knowing whether or not my activities cost other people their ultimate freedom. Mm. That's some deep thoughts. Did you have this reckoning with yourself, this self-revelation after getting caught? Or was this always running through your head? When did this realization, this truth, this understanding that you seem, that seems to be coming from your core, when did this dawn on you? It dawned on me shortly after I got that long sentence. Mm -hmm. When I had got sentenced, my attorney had told me, you know, you're going to make it through this. You know, you're you're, going to be in your 50s, but you'll make it through this. You'll be okay. The long sentence, meaning you got 25 to life? Yes. The thing is, he told me, he said, you'll understand, but he said, you've got to realize that these crimes you committed were serious. Yeah, you didn't hurt anybody physically, but you hurt them in other ways. Uh-huh. Well, I had to really ponder over that because I was dealing with the shock. I was dealing with the disbelief because people who get 25-year sentences are people who committed murder, people who have done yeah. crazy, horrible things. And I'm sitting here thinking, Wow, all I took was money. I didn't do a bank robbery. I didn't terrorize anybody. I didn't cause any fear. None of that. But yet I have the sentence. So it took a while for me to really understand that for it to set in. But once it did set in, it was real simple. How would I feel if somebody committed that type of crime against me or somebody I love? Or for that meaning somebody I just know. I would feel terrible for that something happened to you. Mm-hmm. And I've just met you. Mm-hmm. So it seems like you turned it around, the whole idea of what if this happened to me? And that is what you like walked into the wall of realization, it seems like. Was there a book? Was there a person? Was there a counselor? Was there an idea? Or was it just from those simple words that your lawyer told you that made the thought well, process start? My lawyer shared those words with me. But this was the thing. I had already begun studying the Bible with Jehovah's Witnesses at that time. And basic Bible principles begun to apply. I always consider myself a person who loves people. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, if you love people, how can you knowingly, willingly go commit a crime against mm-hmm. 
or the the golden rule that pretty much everybody understands regardless of the mm -hmm. nominations and such mm -hmm. treat others like you want to be treated mm -hmm. well when i'm thinking i'm studying the bible and i'm thinking about that i'm like wow i wouldn't want somebody to treat me like this but look what i've done multiple times mm. and don't get it fooled don't get it twisted everybody knows that most people who commit crimes don't ever get caught for every single thing they've done mm -hmm. so there's a reality that says that if i'm really going to follow my christian principles i have to get to the root of why i did what i did where is my excuse i can't say that i didn't have any money i can't say that i was forced into it i can't say my parents drugged me into it I can't say people that all my family was incarcerated and I can't say any of that. So first I was like, okay, where's my excuse? And I realized mm. you don't have an excuse. It must've been pain, a painful admission. It is a painful, it was a painful admission because on paper, if one were to look at the positive things that I've done, some might say I shine, but then if you, then you look at the criminal aspect and it's like this, Wow. And for me as an individual, I dislike thinking that I was willing to do the things I did. Because mm, it was incongruous with who you were. Exactly. Mm. Or who I should have been. Was this self-revelation? Did you feel like you were beating yourself up a bit? Or did you feel like, did you feel incredible remorse? Or did you feel a sense of waste? of time, like, look at now I have 25 to life that I'm wasting my brain power in here for, or what, what was going through your head after the adjustment of getting into prison and leaving your family behind? I would say a mixture of all of that waste because I'm thinking, all right, there's a number of people here around me in prison who would absolutely love to have been able to do the things that I was fortunate enough to be able to do. Mm -hmm. They'd have loved having two parents at home. They'd have loved always having a nice home. They'd have loved being able to go to good schools, being able to go to college. They'd have loved being able to, you know, work in management and do things. They'd have loved those opportunities. Not to worry about gunshots, dope, or, you know, or, you know, on the general sense all the time. They not to have to worry about gang, a lot of that. Mm -hmm. They'd have loved that situation. And I'm thinking, well, I had all that and I gave it away. Mm -hmm. I consciously made a choice to do something that I knew was wrong more than once. Mm. And the three strikes. Mm -hmm. I felt waste. I felt remorse. That was probably the heaviest one because when you, I look and I think, and as I already expressed to you, not knowing what I may have caused other people to go through and do mm -hmm. is really troubling, really troubling, because I realize that things are hard. Things are hard out there on people. Mm -hmm. When people lose property, especially property that they spent time, money, money, and effort and energy into, that can be very traumatic. Mm -hmm. And not only can it be traumatic, the next individual who comes along who might look like me, a black or Latino, they might mistreat them mm -hmm. because of what I did. In their mind, they don't want to be victims again. So somebody else comes along who's trying to do something right, perhaps, and they get mm -hmm. mistreated. 
they get dismissed out of hand or mistreated because I, as a man, black, Latino, what have you, I took away their trust. This season is brought to you by Defy Ventures. They are a national nonprofit with a beautiful vision of cutting recidivism in half by leveraging entrepreneurship to increase economic opportunity and to transform lives. Defy's programs are helping currently and formerly incarcerated people across this country defy the odds by providing pathways that lead to employment, entrepreneurship, and a successful re-entry. Please visit Defy's website at defyventures.org and sign up for their mailing list to stay in the loop. Links to Defy's website and social media can be found in the show notes. You seem to have a grave responsibility on you about that. That's a, a rare place to hear people talk about. That's a, a very mature outlook. Like that is somebody who spent a lot of time thinking about how their actions have affected others. And I don't know that I would have gotten to that place as quickly as you have. That's, that's pretty deep and powerful. And I admire your admission in that because so many people want to excuse things away and still make themselves look better and feel better and justify, right? But you've just, you seem to have just come down to the bare bones and this is what it was and I've accepted it. And now I'm no longer that person, right? Well, I'm definitely not. My determination now is to do forward and my do, give it forward, you know, and when I say give it forward, I've received a lot of positive things. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, of course, I give credit to my God, to Jehovah and Jesus Christ, because I know that without the things that they have done and allowed me to do, I wouldn't have an opportunity. Mm-hmm. But I also look at situations, circumstances, people I've met, um, groups, things I've been involved in, like within prison. Defy Ventures is an excellent example. That's why mm-hmm. we're talking now today. Mm-hmm. People to come along and create these positive programs and help people to from all different varieties from backgrounds to see the light so to speak i mean once you're in prison i had to realize that it made no difference to many in society definitely not the majority of prison guards made no difference what you did the point is you are a prisoner you are the low of the law your word is not to be trusted your brain is underdeveloped. You're bad for society. You obey us because you obviously cannot obey and lead yourself. So that's just a given. In prison, that's just everybody is in that level. Yes, in state prisons. Now, perhaps in federal prisons, perhaps it's different because uh-huh. I've always been told that they have, uh, was it club fed, I guess, for people who commit certain types of crimes and you got the real prisons, but in state prisons, you are all wearing blue. We're all subjected to the same humiliation, the loss of dignity. Uh-huh. Here I am, I, I get into prison, and I'm not smuggling any drugs or contraband or stuff, but yet I still have to suffer the indignity of stripping down and spreading my butt cheeks for 
grown men to look in my butt to make sure I'm not transporting some sort of contraband. I can't even be, begin to say how the indignity, I understand it because how do they know? They have to think like they think. But on the same token, I do believe, I'm sure, that some take a perverse pleasure mm -hmm. in what they're able to do mm -hmm. to us when they have that authority. Was that the hardest challenge while being there, was the indignity and the humilia humiliation? Well, no, not just that. You know, you have the indignity, humiliation, but you day-to-day -day living in prison, there are so many ways that you can make your prison stay easier. Really? Basically, first off, every vice that you pretty much have at home, you have in prison. Okay. Mm -hmm. If it's drugs you, you want and you crave, you can get drugs. If it's gambling, you can get the gambling. If it's uh, sex, you can get sick. Pretty much everything, you know, if it's violence, you get, you're one of those people who just love violence. You, it, there's something for everybody. Oh, my goodness. Ways where people can take themselves away from, their, from the reality that they're in prison uh -huh. so they can spend their time, occupy their time. The hardest thing is to avoid uh, falling into those traps, the gangs, the associations, the temptations, the pricklings or provocations from staff and prisoners alike, hmm. all of that is very difficult. Learning that at times you get punished for the actions of others, other people you don't even know. For example, so much in prison is based on ethnicity. Mm -hmm. So it could be some guys who I did not even like, would never be around in prison or any place. Mm -hmm. They go do something stupid, and the authorities take everybody who's black, everybody who's Latino, and put everybody on lockdown. That's awful. People who I disagree with 100%, but it makes no difference. Now I'm on lockdown, can't see my family, can't get to phone calls. You know, again, humiliation. So it sounds very discriminatory still in prison. It is. It yeah. is. It is. I know they're making, they proclaim they're making efforts to change that. But this is a system, there's a mentality amongst the prisoners that's been deep set for many years. And it's going to be very hard to change that because you have this, um, these violent, uh, the violent thinking and events that happen outside in the neighborhoods and that just carries on over into prison and vice versa. Mm -hmm. That's not something that's likely that whole mindset is takes time. Then you have staff. The reality that at least what I've come to understand is this from a clean logical point of view, it seems to me that staff prefer the racial division and separation. Why? It's real simple. Give me an example. They, on the yards that I was at, I was on considered a general population yards, okay? They have these other yards that they created called SNYs, sensitive need yards. Mm. Well, sensitive need yards, you had a lot of guys who were gang dropouts, guys who maybe were, um, they did some telling or what have you, some snitching, as they like to say, mm -hmm. uh, informants. You have people who, for whatever reason, just felt they couldn't walk in the main line of prison because they... Mm -hmm special needs, they need protection for whatever reason. Well, when we had riots, 
or incidents happened on our yards, the staff could, and sometimes could tell what was getting ready to happen because they're able to see if, a, if they suddenly see all the blacks kind of gravitating one direction and you see the Latinos going another, whites going another, when they see people starting to really separate, they recognize, okay, something's going down. So now they're looking. Now they're looking to see who's the problem against. Then they'll look and they'll see if they see, okay, it looks like in the middle of the field, like they see these two blacks talking to these Latinos or whatever and so on and so on. So they can kind of figure out what's going on. But the S and Y yards who don't do it, they don't split up by ethnicity. Uh-huh. I remember they had a riot uh, on, a, on a B yard at the prison I was at in one of the yards. And a staff member had told me later that the biggest thing, the thing that bothered them the most was that they had no clue because those guys don't split up based on ethnicity or anything. So the staff didn't see the signs. Mm, interesting. So it does benefit them. And so for staff, the racial division and problems ultimately benefit them. And that's a terrible thing because they're trying, they're trying to find a way to change it. But yet deep inside, I think uh, part of the thing is the system likes that. Mm-hmm. Because as long as you, as long as you can set people up in different groups, and then you can see how those groups operate, and as long as they operate that way, you can see stuff happening a mile away. Mm. Now the problem is that from a societal point, some people buy into this, especially youngsters who go to prison. This is a terrible thing. They get to prison, and they may not have had serious racial attitudes or biases, but they get to prison, and in order to survive. They become members of some group that's within their race. And if it happens to be one of those extreme group groups, they become racially uh, biased, prejudiced, and everything else. And they act out on that for years, even if they really didn't feel it from the beginning. So now they're released out into the public, and they have these attitudes. That's so disheartening. Oh, my goodness. And, yeah, especially... Like you were saying, the young ones who come in, who are still forming their ideals and, and character and everything about the world, they're much more susceptible to what these long timers are throwing at them in order to just survive. They have to assimilate to that prison culture. Yes. yes. Oh, that just breaks my heart. That just is horrible. It sounds like from what I've learned from talking to many of the people who've taken part of Defy, what they have to offer in prison, you have to, you can't just sign up and just go to the class. Do you have to be approved? Is that how how it (laughs) works? Well, this is what happens with Defy. At least, you know, the prison I was at. Defy, initially, when they first started at that prison, there was a large sign-up. Everybody wanted to get in. So they held an event where they pulled everybody out and told everybody what it was. But once a lot of people, decent amount of people found out what it was, a lot of them dropped out. And then others, once they found out what was going on, they decided, you know what? We can't do this. Because you have to want it. You have to want the change. And it's not, and you can't fake it. Right. Environment. None of that works. Yeah. Well, after we got in, and our first class in Defy, we graduated 24 people. And we'd actually started off the class with like 50 plus people. 
Wow. Some people got transferred because of, uh, they got transferred to other prisons out of their hands. That's out of their mm -hmm. control. Others dropped out. Mm -hmm. But once we graduated and we were able to show other people what we got, talk to them about the experience, they knew it, they saw the certificates, they saw what we did and what we accomplished, and then they understood more about the networking capability, what we were able to do now, things changed. Now, more and more people want to sign up. Okay. After that first class, I became a facilitator for Defy, which I did for a few years. Awesome. And continue to try to help people get in. Um, it's not just simple as going to the class because Defy, because of the work that's involved, just like college classes, you're going to end up with homework. You cannot do it all there while you're in the class and Defy. You're not going to get everything done. So you have to be willing to set aside some time to study, to learn, mm -hmm. to sit down and study groups with other people mm -hmm. so that you can understand different concepts and principles that you didn't know before because a lot of the things Defy teaches are foreign to many of our guys. Yeah. Did that give you a sense of purpose again, being able to use your intellectual skills to it help did. benefit others and be a facilitator? It did. Mm -hmm. it did. And I would have to say it's because Defy came along and taught something that I knew to be a fact, which was the idea that just because you have a felony, it doesn't mean life is over. It doesn't mean that you can't own a business. It doesn't mean you can't succeed. I know that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had already, as I told you before, I got myself in trouble when I got out. I went back into business management, no problem. Mm -hmm. I helped other people start businesses. Mm -hmm. I know it's possible. Well, you couldn't, all the time I was in prison, I couldn't talk about that because people would say, oh, you don't know. You're blue just like us. So my credibility was zero. So all of a sudden, though, you have Defy coming along, teaching what I know to be true. And I'm seeing myself and the peers, I'm seeing light bulbs go off. So I wanted to be involved. And don't get it wrong. There's some things that Defy taught that I was already familiar with in college actually being in business. But there were a lot of things that Defy taught that I was not familiar with that I needed. For example, Defy does not focus strictly on entrepreneurship and business management. A lot of it character development. Mm -hmm. And when you are assessing your character and you're forced to look at the hard, cold truths about yourself, about the flaws, that's hard. When you're forced to look at and consider what you may have caused other people, the pain and harm you cause other people, that can be hard. Then learning that if you do have some people who maybe they offended you intentionally or non-intentionally for whatever reason, to learn how to forgive those people, truly forgive, can be a challenge. Not to mention, how do you forgive yourself? Oh, yes. Okay, that's a huge one, especially for ones like me. My daughter, uh, who I, who my one in particular, is my baby girl. She uh, has told me for years, and still, she actually, she slowed down now. Mm -hmm. But for years, I had a habit of beating myself up. Mm, I and she's always like, Dad, you're beating yourself up. And she's 100% right. I was. Mm -hmm. But in my mind, it was hard to forgive myself because I wasn't there. I chose, I made a decision that meant that instead of being there for her, when she was graduating high school, I was on a prison yard. 
Mm. Instead of being there for her when she got married, I was on a prison yard. Mm -hmm. Instead of being there for her when she had my first, my grandchild, I was on the prison yard. Mm. I wasn't there when my son needed me. Yeah. Okay. Those are deep, I'm, heavy, heavy things. Terrible. It, it sounds like her forgiveness towards you enabled you to better forgive yourself. Oh, there's no question. Yeah. And that's where Defy also comes in because uh, Defy makes you examine that. And when I examined it, it made it allowed me to move forward. So mm. absolutely 100%. I support Defy. I support what it stands for. And will be involved with Defy in a positive way for however long it is that they allow me to be involved. That's fantastic. So it was the biggest aspect of what it did in your life was not only combined the intellectual information of how to thrive once outside of prison, but also how to thrive emotionally, psychologically, and grow yes. in character. Whether yes. you ever get out or not, that yes. seems to be the part that hits your heart. Yes. Hit your mind and your heart, it sounds like. It's true. Well, awesome. this is the thing. There are some people who, unfortunately, due to the system, due to certain laws right now, it's unlikely they may ever make it out of prison. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that they have to be bad people for mm -hmm. their lives. Also, if they cut back on what it is, the character flaws that make them so-called bad people, the quality of their life, wherever it is at, in the more important ways, will improve. Mm -hmm. And those that are released, well, that speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. All right. If you yeah, come out yeah. a different person than you were when you went in, you're less, at least in a positive sense, you are less likely to be willing to commit some sort of offense against any of your fellow men or women walking around the street. So tell me when you got paroled and how challenging or easy um, or difficult re-entry was for you? When I first got out, I was a little bit apprehensive about the parole system, about how things were gonna go, because I had known, even though I didn't have much of a problem before, I figured I did all this time, there's a different time, I don't know what's, how it's what's gonna happen. They required, since I've been in jail so long, that I go to a transition home, mm -hmm. which I did. I met the parole agent. He seemed to be very decent, straightforward, seemed to be okay. Well, over my first few weeks, because I had contact with him, I think pretty much once a week, the first few weeks, uh, you know, he'd come by just for a few seconds, see me. I realized, you know, this is okay. It's not that bad. He offered a lot of information and support if it was necessary. Mm -hmm. um, by this point, I already had a job. In my case, I was actually working within a few weeks from getting home. That's awesome. Long story short, he told me, he said, look, don't violate the law and things will go good for you. Well, of course, I have not violated the law and things went well. Eventually, I finished my six months in the transitional home and I moved out to where I'm living now, which is Rancho Cucamonga with my wife. Mm -hmm. I got another parole agent. And... She was uh, 
very much awesome, but very the same type of attitude. If you do not break the law, you won't have a problem. Mm -hmm. Now, I found that the parole agent, even though she knows that I'm working, that I'm doing well, stable home, she still went out of her way to make sure I had all type of information, information on ways to cut rent, ways to, if I lost a job, I had so many potential job opportunities that the parole agents were just going out saying, hey, you know, these people here are hiring, these people here are hiring, they're doing this, they're going, wow. So, so. I really received a lot of support, but this was the key. The reason I received such support and didn't have excessive difficulty with parole is because now it seems that the general attitude of the parole agents who deal with long-term people is, if you don't violate the law, you'll be okay. Mm-hmm. If you're slick and you're coming up with stuff and sneaky, got something for you. Mm-hmm. But if you're not violating the law, we want to get you off parole. Well, I'm happy to say that, as you know, I got out in May of 2020. I'm happy to say that as of a week ago, Tuesday, July 6th, they discharged me from parole. I'm no longer on parole. I'm no longer part of the CDCR system. Oh, congratulations. What a weight off your shoulders, huh? Yes, very much so. That's awesome. I can't imagine how you feel. Well, very happy, but I also recognize that I had a lot of help on the way because not only did I have uh, my God, Jehovah, my faith, my wife, my beliefs, but also a lot of people. People at Defy Ventures supported me in a very big way in regards to job opportunities, different Mm -hmm. opportunities, opportunities to make my story known as I'm Mm -hmm. talking to you right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, People at LARP, LA Area Regional uh, Reentry Program that I'm part of, graduated from a program they have. Uh, People at uh, Anti-Recidivism, Scott Budden, the the program that Scott Budden co-founded. I've had a lot of support. And by, and you keep, you obtain and you keep that support by trying to do the right thing, regardless of what's going on wrong around you. Mm-hmm. You see, one of the attitudes I got in prison years ago was I realized, you know, I would rather be broke and living under a bridge on the street than to be back in prison. Mm. The earnings, what you make in prison is so low. It's it's not even laughable, it's, you know, but the thing is, you realize that your worst day free is far better than your best day incarcerated. That is a fantastic quote. And we'll not forget this. No. And this is what I recommend to people who are in the situation, people mm-hmm. who are leaving prison. There's a lot of temptation here. Mm-hmm. However, especially now in this time with this political climate, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of ways to earn legal money. There's no justification to commit a crime saying you're not making, you can't make any money because you can't, but you have to have the right mental attitude. You're not going to make top dollar the first day you get home. Mm -hmm. Forget that. That's unrealistic. That's where that character development came in where you... And in prison where you learned all that uh, mind and heart stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Realistic expectations and whatnot. Yes. You have to get, you have to have realistic expectations Mm -hmm. and you have to realize that you, you will walk 
before you run. You will crawl before you walk. Now, should you find a way to go right from zero to running? There's a problem there. And it's going to backfire, and mm-hmm. you're going to find yourself back in prison, where none of us want to be. And yeah. unfortunately, that system, the system is, in a large way, is geared against you. All right? I can see that. Well, the entire time I was on parole, for example, I didn't have any problems with law enforcement, but I can only imagine had I been arrested or come in contact, and the first question they ask you, are you on probation or parole? And I said, yes. See, that takes them to a different level for their security. All right now, because they don't know what the person's going to do. And not only that, for those few officers who are bad apples, answering yes to that, finding out you're on parole or probation, that gives them an excuse to do little things, to test you, pick you, prod you. Especially, well, they've been having a bad day. Mm-hmm. Now they've got one. Well, now, being on parole, things are a little bit different now. I don't have mm-hmm. to worry about that Good. aspect. Did you feel or do you feel that you still have to prove yourself to people? Well, I don't believe that I have to prove myself to people. But with that being said, I do feel that I still have some to make up for. I do feel that I still owe, owe it to share what I now know and understand with some other people. Don't get me wrong. I'm not anxious to run around and I don't run around saying, oh, everybody, you know, I'm in prison. I'm expelled. No, I don't do that. That's not going to happen. However, there are people out there coming out of prison as well as people that are doing things that are taking them towards the incarceral system. They need to hear stories like mine. There's people out there who are not gang members. They're not drug users or abusers, Mm -hmm. but they're just like I was who's thinking that they could be slick, mm-hmm. thinking that they can get over and they're not hurting anybody. Mm-hmm. They need to hear that somebody like me who committed the type of crimes I got, got that type of time. Maybe then it will start becoming real because I'm sure there's plenty of people who are thinking just the same way I did, thinking, well, we're not really criminals. That's some gangbangers. Mm-hmm. Exactly. If you could give any advice to the general public about the prison system or formerly incarcerated people, what would you want to say? In regards, in regards to the prison system, there are laws that exist now as a result of voters voting with emotion as opposed to voting with statistics. Just taking somebody and putting them in the prison system and figuring that's gonna take care of the problem is false. Mm-hmm. Just thinking that you're gonna put them in the prison system and then they'll change, that also is false. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot more. When you put them in the prison system, they need to be deserving of it because if they do not des- are not deserving of going to the prison system, there is a likelihood they could come out more warped, more violent, more biased, more prejudiced than they were before. Prison systems should be used for the worst of the worst of the offenders. It should not be used for most offenders. That is excellent to keep in mind. You're 100% people vote based on their emotion instead of statistics. I love that advice very much. Thank you for sharing that. Well, we've made it to the end. I only have three Quick closing questions for you. Okay. Um, and everybody gets these same questions. 
what is your one tip to make the world a better place? Study the Bible and apply the principles that are in the Bible. You're full of wisdom, Mr. Pitt Sr. <laughs> Thank you. What are you the most thankful for right now? I'm the most thankful for the opportunity to regain my life and my responsibilities. Good. I'm happy for you. And lastly, what is your favorite quote? That's a hard, that is a very hard one. I know. And it can be my, a paraphrase. That's fine too. My paraphrase is going to be simple. I think my favorite, and I hope nobody takes this the wrong way, but it's real simple. Treat others like you want to be treated. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's a universal truth, isn't it? I believe it is. Mm -hmm. As usual, I'm floored. I have enjoyed every single second of this conversation and have learned so much from you, even though you didn't set out to teach me. <laughs> I appreciate your, your perspective, your experience, and your story. Thank you for sharing. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for giving me the chance to share. I am so glad to hear that Mr. Pitt Sr. became a DeFi facilitator while in prison. Can you imagine all the men he encouraged and helped? I sure do appreciate his insightful recognition that DeFi is not there to teach about entrepreneurship solely, but that the entire program is based first and foremost on character development, exercising those muscles of responsibility, forgiveness, and the ability to examine your motivations. It was because of this internal work that he learned while taking his Defy class that he was able to eventually voice his own admission that at the time of committing his crimes, he was unable to see that he was lying to himself and blind to how his actions affected the lives of those he stole from. This type of self-reflection can only come from a place of deep contemplation of the parts of yourself you typically prefer to hide or justify. I learned a lot about the internal politics of prisons by listening to Bertrand's experience. I also appreciate how he advises people to vote by using statistics, not emotion, when it comes to issues based on the justice system. His warning of placing people in the prison system who are not genuinely deserving of that punishment needs to be heard by those with the capacity to make changes to that system. He has personally witnessed that too harsh of punishment actually achieves the opposite effect. It has the potential to turn out more warped, more violent, more biased, and more prejudiced people than when they entered that system to begin with. Is that truly what we want? Helen Keller says, Character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through the experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, ambition inspired, and success achieved. I think this approach to life is in step with Bertrand's life experience. Sometimes suffering happens to us. Other times, we create our own suffering. But despite the origin, character is built. May we all intentionally choose to develop our character for good, just as Mr. Pitts Sr. has. 
Thank you for listening to Gramercy. Remember, there is no them, just us. See you down the road.